Hey, this episode of Bass Freaks is brought to you by MXR Bass Innovations. MXR has been a leader in guitar effects for over 45 years. MXR Bass Innovations creates bass effects pedals from the ground up, each one specifically designed for bass players by bass players. Not repurposed guitar pedals, but their overdrive, fuzz, EQ, preamp DI, octave, distortion, compressor, or chorus, these tried and true stomp boxes are designed by Dunlop's award-winning team of bassists and engineers. Go to jimdunlop.com and check out MXR Bass Innovations for your bass effects. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Dunlop Presents Bass Freaks. Bass Freaks podcast is a place to gain some insight and inspiration as well as learn a little something about some truly amazing bass players. I'm your host, Josh Paul, and today our Bass Freaks guest is a Canadian-born bassist best known for her work with Prince and Jeff Beck. She's also worked with Shaka Khan, Beyonce, T.I., Erica Badu, and Sheila E. Please welcome bassist, producer, songwriter, and clinician Rhonda Smith. Thanks for having me, Josh. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Thank you so much for the invitation. You are just awesome. I'm sure you know, but I just wanted to reiterate. Well, you're sweet and so are you. Like I said, I'm a big fan. So symbiotic relationship, mutually, uh, we're mutually in in phase with each other today. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) So with such an impressive resume, you must have done a great deal of work to prepare yourself in the early early days. So uh, tell us about your path and, and how you got there. You know what? I started playing bass probably when I was about 11 years old. I was really competitive with um, one of my brothers. I have two brothers and one sister and I'm the youngest. So my brother that was closest to age to me, he was about 15 months older. He brought a bass guitar home one day with the case and he closed the case and he told me don't touch it. Uh. <laughs> so I, I want to do everything he was doing because my sister really wasn't into sports and you know she played clarinet. So I thought you know, that's not cool, but, um, he brought a bass home. So he told me not to touch it. So, um, I know that still haunts him cause he's still a bass player, but that's really how it started. Cause he did it. I wanted to do it. And I, I just, I just really loved it. And when I got younger, I kind of noticed that I really wasn't interested in, in anything else, but that, which wasn't a good thing. Uh. <laughs> but, I guess, I mean, it could be yeah. a good thing. I think it's a good but, thing. But I mean, I, I just enjoyed the whole, you know, the whole spasm of it from, you know, garage bands to playing after school to, and we had a really great music program when I was um, in high school, particularly. But I, I, I remember even in my last year of elementary school that I taught the music teacher because they were playing ukulele. I talked the music, the music teacher into letting me bring my bass because it was tuned the same. I had four strings. So <laughs> nice. Why couldn't I bring it into class and play with everybody else? And she actually let me bring it. So I brought the little amp and stuff too. So, I mean, it's always, it's always just been a thing of, of, and I remember now doing things back then that I probably would, would not do, you know, today, like take a big, you know, huge acoustic bass amp on a, on a school bus. Cause <laughs> They let me borrow it for the weekend, you know, just, just crazy stuff like that. But you know what? I just, um, I just, like I tell people, I just always love the bass and it just always loved me back. And I didn't do it and I didn't start playing it because I thought, oh, I'm going to do this or it's going to bring me that or I'm going to, going to travel this place or whatever. It just, I just did it because I liked it. And that's what I tell people, you know, when they want to go, oh, it's, I'm too late to start or, um, can I start or what should I do or, or always want a, a reason for something? I just say that, just, just do it because you love it and it'll love you back if it's a genuine thing. You know that feeling of when you when you haven't played your bass for a while, you know, it's just that, you know? Yes. That kind of stuff. So um, it just started out really innocently like that. And then everything just kind of happened. And I just think it's because of the principles that, um, I try to do, which is, like I said before, you know, kiss, keep it simple, stupid, you know, just be on time for things, um, get along with people and learn the music for God's sakes, you know, just learn. It doesn't take a lot. There's a story. I always say that, that I find it's kind of funny that some people don't get it. Some people do, but to me, baselines are like, um, it's like reading a book. It's a story. You know, when you learn, when you learn the baseline and, 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 you know, 10, 20 years ago, we didn't have 
you know, the internet so much where you could look at a YouTube video and see what somebody's fingerings were or, you know, where on the neck he was playing or whatever. So now it's maybe it's maybe you get the answers to the question, but before you had to figure all that out, which was cool, you know, learning how the bass sounded different in different spots, different octaves. You hear this part, you're going to train your ears probably a little bit better because you don't have anything else to do it. So um, all of that and, and learning, learning those bass parts note for note was um, a lesson. It's like a story to me that the storyteller is telling. You know, and that you not not only do you, you get that great story, but you get to get the feel and, you know, the technique and, and, and work your way up to understanding where they're coming from. So um, I just loved all parts of it and I was really obsessed with it for as a kid. So I just kind of try to keep those principles, especially when I go and work for other people. You know, I listen to what's okay. there. Is it is a four string? Is it, is it a five string? What is it? And I and I try to learn the, the, the parts, especially um, when I get to write with, to, when I get to play, work with these really amazing writers. Um, how can you embellish, you know, like how can you embellish Prince songs? You know, you got to right. play it right first. You're not supposed to go, oh, well, I think it should go this way. Let me <laughs> line and, you know, everything else. Then I should do this. Hell no, that's not what you should do. Learn the lesson, you know. So, I mean, I think it's just, it's always been kind of an innocent journey for me that um, I've been amazed to see that um, where bass and music has been able to take me, especially as a, as a Canadian girl. So it's been really, really great. I, I, like, I like the quotes, the quotation. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, okay, nice. all right. I want to talk about um, your approach to crafting bass lines. But before that, what was your, so... I know you mentioned your brother had a bass and that was a, uh, that inspired you to actually want to touch it maybe when you weren't supposed to jump, you know, sneak in there and touch it and play it and get interested in it. But was there any other inspiration? You know, was my family it? always played a lot of jazz um, and it was really great. I grew up in Montreal, which was a great city at the time, especially for um, jazz, fusion groups, um, a lot of great bass players. My mother always played a whole ton of jazz. She loved Ella Fitzgerald and, and Sarah Vaughan and, and, and all of the great singers that had the great bass players playing with them. You know, Ron Brown, uh, I mean, uh, Ray Brown, Ron Carter, um, a lot of the Latin guys. And they were just, you know, when I grew up, Uzeb that had Alan Caron in it was a local band. You know, a lot of people still oh, wow. use that, but it was like, they were incredible. You know, and Alan Caron is an, is an incredible bass player, but we could just go downtown and, and, and watch them play live. So there was, um, that amazing. was a really great environment too, because people really respected and came out and supported live music. And even if it was original live music. So um, it, it wasn't odd for me to, you know, um, go for acoustic too, play a little bit of acoustic when I was younger, also stand up, even though I was a little bit small for it, but still to understand um, the importance of that instrument and in jazz and everything else. So that was really cool too. Was bass your first instrument? No, I think I actually... Uh, well, yeah, bass was my first instrument, but when I got into high school, I had to play uh, in the orchestra, so I couldn't necessarily play. There wasn't a stand-up bass in that orchestra, okay. so I had to uh, play euphonium, baritone, but ah. I was still, it was still in bass clef, so I was cool. Oh, you're right, right. That's cool. All right. yeah. So you went to college, right? I went to junior college. Um, okay. And when I was in junior college, I also went to, did some of the university uh, jazz bands. Um, okay. I was, got some of the bass chairs in there during the summer and, and sometimes during the other courses, which was, which was really great. So I had a really early training um, doing that. But it's funny because at that time you couldn't, um, you couldn't be a pop major or anything like that. You know, you had to be a, either um jazz or a classical really that was there were, there were no other alternatives there were no other choices would you say that that it that helped you in the approach um doing all the other stuff that you'd done uh, with pop music totally, and funk totally. And because yeah because really i 
I just, I just love, I love holding the bottom with, with a groove. You know, that's really my, my most favorite part place to be. And or you just, do it oh so well. Yeah. <laughs> just being in a, with a great band and having a great sound and, and being tight with the drummer, whether it's playing simple notes or, or, or not, whatever it is. So, I mean, all that other stuff really helps. And that's what I like to tell people too, because they'll go, oh, well, what kind of styles do you play? I'll say, I play everything as long as it's good, because that's what shapes you really. You know, you want to mm-hmm. be able to, to play and listen to everything and try to get the feels of everything, because it just... It molds you into maybe this hybrid thing of a player, but it also makes you be able to um, cross boundaries, you know, musically and do other things, you know, wow. like go from, from from Prince to Jeff Beck, which is two different things, you know, where some people might have said, well, she's not really a funk player or well, she's not really a fusion player or whatever, but you don't really know, you know, you don't really know that. I, I just blows my mind that you've, done so much and i mean uh i'm, I'm raising the roof giving me a high five great, blo- i it's mean been a great path and like i said music has saved a lot of us and trust me josh it saved me because <laughs> a lot <laughs> so, of us were no good after school so uh, it saved me because i was with the boys playing rock and roll playing led zeppelin playing hendrix or you know playing rush or whatever we were doing so did you ever when you first started playing so, you know, you're you're in school and you're you're jamming out and maybe in the garage band or whatever. Did you ever dream that you'd be on stage playing with Prince or Jeff Beck? Never. And that's what's crazy. You know, I remember I used to have a lot of those posters of the people that I've worked with, you know, on my wall as a kid. It's hilarious. But uh, no, I never would have imagined that. Never in a million years. No. And that wasn't the motive. The motive was just pure fun. You know, awesome. it just... Awesome just that experience and that vibe and hanging out with my friends and, 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 and finding camaraderie that way. Yeah. That's amazing. You won a Juno award. Yeah. What was that like? That was super cool. That was super cool with some, some friends in Canada. Again, I, when I was younger, I, a lot of times I played a lot more jazz fusion and that, that particular Juno was for the best jazz contemporary jazz album. Um, in 1994 with a group called the Merlin Factor um, with some excruciatingly talented cats in there, especially, you know, the drummer who was writing and and um, James Gelfond, the, the keyboard player, who's a, an amazing writer, composer, and fusion jazz player. And um, singer Kim Richardson, just, just, a, just a great group of people. But again, we did a lot of that because um, Montreal was okay with that. They supported that type of music. So you could go and you could write it and you could do albums. You could get, you know, funding sometimes from the, you know, Canada Council grants. And they would push that. And there were places where you could play and make a living doing that. So I, I don't know that it's that it's so much that way anymore, unfortunately. Uh, okay. But that was that was a great experience, absolutely. I still remember like it was yesterday. It was a great album too. So we did a so, lot of with um, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation was really great. CBC uh-huh. was really great at that time and probably still is. Um, they had great recording studios and they would just take groups and let you, you know, go in there. And that's where we recorded the album was with CBC. And it was a, it was a great session and still goes back to, like I did a session at United the other day, which was great, which I, I love to do with these producers and this group of people where we just, do stuff live still, you know, and that I missed. That was like the CBC stuff that we did. There was no, there were no pro tools. There was no click track. There was nothing. You just do it a couple of times and that's it because the band has rehearsed. The band is great that way, but um, I like now. Do you, pref- now you prefer that? Um, I do. I think it's a great thing. And I think if you're a player, that's really what you want to do sometimes. I mean, I think you should be able to do everything, mm-hmm. but I think, yeah, there's a joy in that. And especially for me, because I think I'm a player that when I'm doing live sessions, one, two takes is probably the magic, you know, 45, 46, it's, you know, want, want, kind of lost it by then, you know, 17 mm-hmm. takes at something that's not me. Prince never had patience for that. You know, he was one take, probably the most, and then it's on to the next song. Okay. So I mean, it was like super uber training 
you know. Were you uh, you had to be uh, I don't know if nervous is the right word, but um or is it the right word? Doing those sessions first, initially. When I first met him, I got yeah. it. I, I was nervous, but it's almost like you can't afford to be. Ah, yeah, you know? good point. Yeah, okay. screw up. If you right. start screwing up and you get intimidated, you know, somebody else is going to fill the shoes. Right. Okay. And sometimes intimidation it can mess with your hands, it can mess with your head, it can mess with all kinds of stuff. And, you know, he expected perfection 100% of the time in a world where, you know, I'm sorry, perfection doesn't always exist. We have a saying with him, when you, when you worked for him, he's like the comparison between the, the army and the special forces. It's, it's, it's kind of on another level because he's just, he hears everything, he controls everything. He's just, he's just that kind of dude. And I think we'd also say, you know, probably if you work for him or Miles Davis, you could probably work for anybody. After oh, wow. Okay. How did you land that gig? And Sheila uh, E. Sheila okay. E. hooked me up originally um, with that gig years ago. I met her with my friend Kat Dyson, who started playing guitar too um, with the New Power Generation, probably in 1996. I think we met Sheila at a NAMM show, maybe in, in 1996. And okay. you know, at that time, there weren't that many females playing. There's more now. And I think that was one of my first NAMM shows that I ever went to in my life. So from Canada too, I still live in Canada at that time, but I think we met Sheila E and um, kind of gravitated to her obviously, because like I said, there weren't that many females playing and um, she was looking to possibly be a band leader for him and a new thing that she was going to put together for him possibly okay. in the group. So I don't know if she was overtly looking for people, but she liked what Kat and I were doing. We were playing for a company called Godan Guitars at that time. Great. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. We were playing to dats. You know, we were just, we had our dat going and we were just, just basing guitar and we were just lacing it up. So people were digging it in this tiny little booth, you know, where they kept coming around with the, with the sound meter, you know, go, you know. <laughs> Turn it down. Yeah. So we, you know, we gravitated to each other. And then after that, we, we went and did the music Mason in Germany. And okay. um, she was also at that too. So then again, we kind of gravitated again. And as I said, there were so few musicians. I mean, I think there was just Jennifer Batten was there too. I can't even remember any, any other females at that time. There just weren't that many um, females. So she took a tape of ours that we had and she, she sent it to Prince and didn't hear anything for the longest time. And she ended up not doing it, not being the band leader for that newest connotation because that was right after, um, it was right after Diamonds and Pearls band. Which I don't okay. know why it changed because that was a hot band. That was, was. Sunday, yeah. Michael Bland. I mean, those boys are just killing Minneapolis sound. They got it down. You know, yeah. they were just incredible. I think one of his tightest rhythm sections he's ever had. But um, so he wanted to change it. So I just got a call out of the blue, like probably two, three months after that. I didn't even know. Just, just out of the blue, did I want to come up there? So that was crazy. And of course I said, yes. And I went by myself because it was, it was only an, an invitation for me. Oh, wow. So okay. I went up for about, um, I don't know, I can't remember, maybe three days. And just, there was nothing I could possibly um, prepare for. Okay. Because he has so much music. Yeah. And to be honest, I love Prince, but he wasn't somebody that I listened to all the time before then or knew every single song that he had or you know, as a bass player was completely listening to, to that sound. And that took me a minute to get, because as you know, as we all know, that's a, that's a completely different style. That yeah. Minneapolis sound is a completely different vibe that you gotta, you gotta get a hang of. And I think mainly because he, he, he was playing bass on, on the majority, you know, if not 95% of, of the stuff. So it was his feel. And he's, He's a great bass player. I, he I is. Yes. His technique is almost like a guitar player, really. You know, where some people would say the bass player is a frustrated guitar player. But <laughs> the difference with him is that his feel was so amazing on the matter what he played because he was a multi-instrumentalist that he would play some amazing 
shit, but you look at his hands and look at the technique he's going, and you go, that's wrong, man. You're not supposed to put the thumb there. You're not, you know, but that's why it sounds the way that it sounds. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, it wouldn't sound the same, would it? No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. Yeah. So um, that that was a big part. When I first met him, I remember the first time I met him when he was in the studio, and he still had slave written on his face at that time. The first day I met him, that was that was a little bit intimidating, you know. To go, I can imagine. You're it was crazy. <laughs> oh I was all my by God. myself. <laughs> uh, so, how was it to record with somebody that could play, you know, every instrument? It was amazing, and I mean, I learned so much from this guy. Many times, you know, I had calls in the middle of the night to just come to the studio and sometimes he would leave and just let me go in there and, and finish something up or do recordings with the band or the coolest part is when I was there, you know, I always try to pe- try to tell people to people will say, well, you know, how do you get the gig? But I always say, you know, it's not really, the question should be how you get the gig. The question should be how do you keep the gig? Ah, uh, oh, that's a good point. You, know, you want to make yourself invaluable to people. You make yourself different. So, one of the things that I did listen to when I first went up there, when I first met him, and I knew that we were going to jam for three days, but I didn't know what to expect. And there's no possible way I could even try to learn his material. So I was I was a fretless player then, again, because of fusion and, and, and just where I grew up. Fretless was, you know, my brother bought me, you know, Jocko's record, I think probably when I was 14 or 15 year old, years old, just as a, a Christmas gift, you know, so I would, I would learn that. Then, you know, one year they would give me Rocks, Pebbles, and Sand of Stanley Clark or something, you know, so I love this kind of stuff. So fretless, I like to play. And during, I think, those times, around 96, 95, maybe he had some tunes out before, but a lot of these cats were using keyboard samples of fretless sounds, which fretless bass, which I didn't really dig. I think there was Paul Carrick or somebody had a big hit in, in the UK too. I can't remember the song in the mid nineties, but he was using that keyboard sample too, which was a fretless mm-hmm. for his bass song. But I mean, for his bass sound. Okay. The song was a hit. Um, but I didn't really like the sound of it as a bass player because I thought, you know, you, the vibrato is not unique. It's not, it's, you know, it's one of those, it's the bar and, and it's not really the instrument. So I brought a fretless with me when I went to first meet Prince because I saw that he was using keyboard samples and I wanted to maybe show him the difference. And I guess it worked because the coolest part about, you know, when I left, after three days, no one told me I had the gig. I had no expectations. I just went home and thought, well, you know, that's cool. But the coolest part is that when I was there, he had Emancipation, that huge, amazing record, probably 80% done. And he asked me to play uh, on two songs on it, both with fretless. And one was Dreaming About You, and he asked me to do a bass solo on it. So I thought, oh, my God, you know, I'm in heaven, even if I don't get the gig. At least I, I have some bragging rights when I go home. So the friend yeah. made a difference, you know, and I've always yeah. kind of played it with him that way. And I don't think he ever used a keyboard sample again. Why you would know? he? Yeah. <laughs> It's it's a cool instrument, and and I had fretless all over. You know, one of the first records I did with him after that was The Truth, which had right. a lot of really cool fretless stuff and co-wrote some stuff with him, and you know, used a lot more harmonics on it. And that was that was even in 1996. It was a long time ago, but still, for him to do that was really was really cool to let to let me do that. So. Um, those experiences are, you know, close to my heart and just so crazy. I still remember it like it was yesterday. Oh, did he affect your gear choices? Did he? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Somewhat down the line. Definitely. You know, cause when I first came to him, I think I came with a five string. I've played six strings. I played everything with him, but, um, what do you prefer the most personally? I, I prefer four string, but to be completely honest, he kind of bullied me out of, playing that because he really wanted um you know his his i think his true sound was you know larry graham jazz bass uh four string sly and the family stones that's really what he wanted so he kind of i'm going to say bullied because he did but he bullied me into (laughs) um playing fender so i went with fender for a long time even though i mean it's not a bad move i love fenders and i always think that every bass player 
should have a Fender jazz bass or a precision. You got to be crazy not to, you know. Yeah, it's a it's a sound standard, and there's certain artists that you can go and audition for, or maybe go and see that if you walk in there with a six string, even a five string, they might not let you play because oh, wow. that's what they're looking for. So yeah. I learned that too. But yeah, um, four string definitely jazz bass was his thing, um, and certain pedals that were a standard like the um the dan electro fab tone that distortion a lot of people will ask me you know what is that distortion you're yeah. using? And, and it's always been that dan electro fab tone because if there's two things he wanted two pedals that happened that was one and it had to be all the buttons are set on full <laughs> you know it's, <laughs> just, it's like, boom, just i love it i love it and the other one was the Digitech uh, Whammy. Okay. Had to use a Digitech Whammy from the time I walked in there. And again, those were, I used them in a lot of different ways, but for him, he just wanted it as an accent, almost like uh, almost like when a keyboard player on a floor goes, woo, you know? Yeah. That's, that's really, that's really was uh, an imperative for his sound, for me. So he influenced me definitely with those. Everything else I could do what I wanted. Okay. But that's pretty much it. And, and he preferred that at that time that I, I played Mesa Boogie because he played Mesa Boogie. So look uh, better on the stage, you know. Right, and much right. stuff to Mesa Boogie. They make great stuff. Very cool. How do you think um, the experience with Prince changed you or did it change you? Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, made me a better player. For sure, um, better singer, um, better better producer, better writer, better performer. I think about a lot of things like that um, when I deal with him. But I think in the bad side, probably it made me. Um, I don't have a lot of patience for shit. <laughs> you know, you <laughs> okay. can't come in and, and not pull your weight because I'm probably going to grimace. My face is going to look like that. I don't have a lot of patience for, you know. Um, Team players, let's say, who don't uh, don't do the work. I uh, got it. So that's probably a bad side. Maybe not. I don't. Certainly I don't, not in my band. It, yeah, you know, I was going to say I don't you think gotta, that's you really a bad thing, right? I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. So I don't have a lot of patience for that. Okay. Okay. Going back a little bit, um, did you find it more challenging um, being a female basis coming up? You know what, maybe a little bit when I started, but I got to say, you know, everybody was pretty cool with me. And, you know, there just went to, you know, past a certain point when I was younger when people just started saying, well, you play, you play pretty good for a girl, you know. <laughs> so, certainly no one said that to me in years and years and years and years. That's That's been long lost. But um, I, I got to say that, and I've heard females and spoken to females who have definitely had horror stories from touring with men and, and certain groups that were, you know, constantly sexually harassed and, and just all kinds of stuff, but it happens. Yeah. Um, but I've got to say that I've been really lucky to work with some really great gentlemen and some great musicians, married men, single, whatever. Um, there's never really been um, a point that I can think of anything disrespectful, but it's how you carry yourself too. You know, sometimes you got to know how to, got to be a girl but you got to know how to be one of the boys too and let you know the water run off the duck's back sometimes not take everything too serious i get that what was the uh, greatest lesson you learned from your time in um the paisley universe i say the number one is uh, you know respect the music number one and probably number two to that or or equally is is um to own your music you know to own your masters too Oh, yeah. I think it's really important in terms of business, you know, be on your business because it is, it is a music business, you know, it is a business. And it's much easier to do now um, as well, I think. I think so too. Owning your stuff. Yeah. Sure. Because not everybody's getting a deal anymore. You know, there's only so so few companies. It's a little bit easier, but there's still uh, just tons and tons now. Now everybody's, you know, everybody's got a new record out on streaming platform. Right, 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 right. It's like what? It's like spinning. It's not, it's not <laughs> a big deal. Um, what was your best tour or recording memory and your worst? 
that's tough. There's been so many. I mean, I can't. You know, probably my my best tour memory was probably my very first one with Prince because it was walking into such a huge, just such a huge stage. And my first uh, tour with Jeff Beck was also mm. just um, just amazing. He's he's such a great guy, and it was just so different. But you know, the first one we did was with um, a double bill with him and Eric Clapton. So it was <laughs> just, definitely just a little artist, a few little artists. <laughs> <laughs> and, and man, and it had Willie Weeks playing bass, you know? So I was like, what? Look wow. at this band, Steve Gadd. I'm like, what? Oh, wow. <laughs> you know? Wow. Couldn't be any better, man. So, I mean, those are probably two of my best, even though, you know, I've had many experiences. But I always remember the first, you know? Right. Bad ones? I don't know. I, I I can't think of too many too many bad ones at this point, you know. But I just remember with Prince, a lot of nights staying up, and um, we're going home when the sun's coming up. You know, just we yeah. worked so much. Um, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I don't think I would want to keep that pace now of you know doing rehearsals or going out and touring and doing sound checks and then having. Um, the uh, the music club, like the, the, the New Power Music Club come in, which was great to do the sound check and then we play a concert for them. And then we do a two, three hour show. And then you go do an after party for another two, three hours. Oh, you know, wow. You go to bed at five or six o'clock in the morning and you go drive to the next town or to get ready to do the same thing again. So I wouldn't say that was bad per se because like i said that's that was the training but that was an right. awful lot of work how long did you do that oh for years okay that's crazy yeah, yeah. for years crazy mm-hmm. man okay how'd you get the gig with uh jeff beck you know ironically that was uh narada michael walden who um suggested uh me for that thing to Jeff and Narada and I had never played together. So that was really, uh, you know, a long shot, but <laughs> it worked out that it was so cool. It was so cool. So that was, I, I owed all of that to uh, Narada Michael Walden. How was that gig different? Did it require uh, like a different skill set or mindset? All of that, all of that. I oh, think okay. I probably, I don't think I played as hard with Prince, I play hard. I had played harder with Jeff, especially during the first years when he had full keyboards on there and he was doing just all kinds of back material and all kinds of stuff. It, it was, it's a lot. I mean, I don't, this, this man is incredible because Jeff Beck doesn't play the same thing, you know, doesn't play the same solo, you know, every night. Like some pop artists will, will, will you know, look at things differently in pop music, you know, so all this stuff is just fresh with him all the time and he's constantly playing. So, I mean, it's, I got the utmost respect for this guy and learned so much from him. Again, you know, I've been with him for like 12 years now. It's going to be 12 years when we go, because we're getting ready to go back on tour in, in, in May. Amazing. Very cool. But, um, it's different. It was, it's different this way, Josh. Prince was, in control of every single note, knew every single thing, did the lighting, did the production, did the sound, was in choreography. I mean, every, what you were wearing, down to every single thing. He used to say, if there were five people in the band, he said there were six, and the sixth person was space for silence, meaning don't don't fill up those spaces, don't don't do that, because that's really what funk is about. It's not supposed to be plucks all over the place like like some people embellish <laughs> his music, which cracks me up. But the difference. <laughs> And he'd be he'd be tough. I mean, sometimes we would do a television or something that was televised, and instead of like most groups that would come by and and give a prayer, or you know, they do their group prayer, or you know, be all happy before the show. You know, he'd come up to probably each of us and go this close to our face and go, "Don't screw up." Oh wow, <laughs> that's not the thing you want to hear before yeah. the show. And he was known for you know finding people, you know, wanting money from you. Uh, James Brown else. type of thing. Yeah, okay. he took a All lot right. of money from Joan Blackwell, you know, unfortunately. But <laughs> the difference with Jeff Beck is is Jeff just, not that Prince shouldn't have, but Jeff trusts who he hires to to play 
what they're supposed to play for him and what he's going to like. So he's not, he's not really about telling you what you need to play. Obviously, if he doesn't like something or if something's wrong, he's going to say it. But he trusts the people that he's with. And as a, as a perfect example, if, uh, and this has never happened, but mind you, if Jeff's show was completely screwed up and, and messed up by the band, um, he would be backstage offering everybody a mimosa after the show and having a great time. You know, if that was Prince, the bodyguard would be coming around um, asking you to write a check, you oh, know, wow. or maybe you got fired. <laughs> you know, so it was a complete <laughs> different level of um, of what music means to to both of them. You know, that uh, just the difference in vibe had to be so I, I would say less stress with Jeff right yeah, uh, yeah. On, a, on a different level you know Jeff's stuff probably was definitely for me was more musically challenging first getting into it and learning his show it was much more like boom boom you know just right right the stuff that he was playing there so um I wouldn't say it in a sense like oh it's nothing you know, no, 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 no. I mean, I mean, no, I didn't, I, and I didn't say you were saying that. But yeah, vibe. I, I just mean vibe wise. Vibe is, but but he, he yeah. just picks well, you know, he picks right, right. who he knows is going to do the job. But yeah, it was completely different. And it was a, a chance for me to just go for a minute and just, just how relax. You, how do you think that affected your playing? Because I know in different situations, you know, you, you still got to do your job. Yeah. But you know, dealing with different camps and different people, it, it really does affect you. Maybe not initially, but over a long term, I think. I think, it, I think it affected me a lot. And the one way that I liked how it affected me is that the playing required more, but my time per se was, was less in, in what I had to do. The Prince was so um, challenging, which was great, that here's the caveat. You know, you can get to the point with Prince that you go, oh, I got all the bass parts down. I got this down. Even got the backgrounds. I'm good to go. I got this in the bag. And then he comes and says, okay, we're doing choreography. So you have <laughs> to dance now and do all of that that you're doing and sing. And Damn. you have to do <laughs> the show. Uh, you're going to do a show at the, at the sound check and you're going to do an after party, which is probably going to be an accumulation of maybe you need to know about two, 300 songs in your head that I'm going to call out at any given time. Wow. That's Jeff is, you know what it is. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. I don't have to dance. <laughs> I might sing a little bit, but I don't have to do, you know, I don't have to do choreography. Yet. I don't have to do a lot of backgrounds. I know what the set's going to be. And the, guess what? There's no after party. <laughs> you know, party. My bass is not coming. You know. Right, 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 right. Okay. So it was a big difference. There's a big difference for that alone. You know. Let's let's move forward a little bit. What did you do to stay sharp and focused during uh, this pandemic that we've been dealing with for a little while now? Who you know what? I stayed out of danger. I got <laughs> me a, got me a new new puppy that kept me. Uh, uh oh, what'd you get? What kind of puppy? Oh, I got a Yorkie. You know, I got a Yorkie. Oh. I, um, I got a new one, so that really helped. I stayed out of trouble. That's number one. Did you stay healthy? Lot. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I have a gym, so I worked out at home. Okay. I cooked my own food, so I did that. Um, and I wrote a lot. It was a great time for me to uh, to write. Amazing. Um, Tell us, it, let's talk about that. Tell us about your music. Yeah. Uh, I... I, I and I always like to do this when I get a break from touring because it's hard for me to do both. So I had a new single that I wrote uh, called Won't Come Back that I put out um, this year. This it, it's called what? It Won't Come Back. Won't Come Back. And yeah. that's out for everybody to that's go out get? That's for everybody. Uh, I also did a, I cut a video for it that's on uh, YouTube. It's on my YouTube channel also. But you can find it. It's, it's distributed by Sony in the Orchard, so you can find it. Awesome. Any Amazon Music, anything. It's on, on, it's on everything. Um, and that's done really well. But actually, speaking of that, um, I have a new remix of that called Won't Come Back, the remix featuring uh, rapper Troy Noika that's coming out on April 22nd this month. It's going to be released 
uh, worldwide again. So we're looking forward to that one. And this is stuff that I wrote um, during the pandemic at home because I felt like I had the time. And it's been, it had been some time since my last record. My last two records have been a lot of time since I had been busy. So I figured that I wanted to write some new stuff. But I didn't feel comfortable uh, enough yet, even though I have it, but to just throw out an album right away. So I wanted to start just with uh, some singles first, some videos, tell some stories and, and, and do it that way because the business has changed. And you, are you singing on that stuff too? I am. Absolutely. One of the motivations for Won't Come Back was that I wanted to hear more fretless bass and contemporary music. So mm-hmm. I put it in there, but it's not a smooth jazz song because it, it, it's hard but but there are some lines and some things other than a bass line in it where normally if you hear that on the radio it wouldn't be in popular music it wouldn't be on popular radio but right. i use it in an r&b kind of way and it's um it's cool it's cool and i, and I love personally to hear that bass um that way because i felt like i was missing it that everybody was missing hearing fretless bass in contemporary music again it's a, it's a great instrument and where it takes a little bit of a lead, you know? Yeah, that's very cool. So let's talk about crafting um, some bass lines, um, especially in your original music. I know you wanted to bring in the fretless sound on that, and it was important to you. Um, what's your approach? I tend to be more of a melodic person rather than, I think, a person of, of a million notes. So I, I tend to always think about melody first, but I love craft, crafting bass lines. And I'll get a lot of people who will send me stuff that I love to cut in my studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, people want me to cut bass lines, and that's something that I really, really enjoy, whether it's fretless or not. Um, and I, I, I find that's always funny that we're writing, but you know, we, we, it's never considered writing. It's just a, a pay for hire. But a lot of the times I think the bass is so important because it's the bottom, you know, we control everything. Yeah. Whether we play on top of the beat, whether we play behind it, whether we change, we can change the harmony, we can change the chords, we can change, we have the power to do all of that. So um, we're running love- shit. <laughs> yeah. But I, I love to write bass parts and it's different for everybody. It really depends on the tune. But mm-hmm. I just, I love being in that zone. I love writing that way for people who send me stuff. And I love when people send me stuff to do that. So I, I don't know. I'd say I'm more, you know, my number one objective is, is, is always that lock, no matter what it is, you know. Because if the foundation is not strong, if the foundation is not built, nothing's going to stand above it. My pet peeve is when I when I'll write something for somebody or lock it with whether they send me real drums or whether it's program drums and then they'll get back to me later and they say yeah it's great but you know what we, we ended up changing the drums like, oh. Oh. <laughs> you know what i'm saying they changed everything and still <laughs> using the track yeah but yeah. You, you're still using the bass track it's like yeah. no, no that's not that's not the way that it, that's not the way that you should do it so right. i think first and foremost i'm about that lock first okay. when it comes to writing bass lines but um do you do you write um Sometimes bass lines are secondary for me in my okay. own music. Like with, with Welcome Back, for instance, I, I, I started with the vocals first, which is really usually a lot of times where I hear the melody when I start. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hear words last, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't know why I'm like that, but I always hear the melody first and I have to put the words to the melody or to this, the syllables. But I get it. And, then it came with that but a lot of stuff i've been writing recently has bass up top rather than bass in the bottom like won't come back it's got a little bit of synth bass in it but it doesn't have bass on the bottom because the bass is on the top so i'm also somebody that doesn't like to write with a whole bunch of different basses in the same song because i think that dynamic range really can't take it Understood. Yeah, Weird. I get that. But I've been writing recently. I have a new song. Hopefully, it'll come out in the summer that I wrote with uh, this Moob bass. That's M U B. That's made by Maurizio Basses, Maurizio Uber Basses in Malaysia. And it's actually, it's a, I had to make me a six string bass, but it's a travel bass. So it's about this long. So they cut off the neck. So what happens is the neck starts at the 12th fret. 
but you use regular strings. So really it's an octave above, right? Because it's really like you're only playing the higher register. Interesting. Higher okay. octave. But it's a six string, which is really great because you can do a lot of chording, a lot of interesting things with it. So I wrote a song around that um, using the same thing because I had a tendency before to use a lot of piccolo basses. Some people call them tenors, but uh-huh. like I have some some Lakeland uh, 494s that I love, but I string them with piccolo strings. Okay, And it's really nice on the bird's eye maple neck. You know, the sound that they have, even if you pop them or whatever, but the unconventional ear might go, oh, well, that's, you know, that's a guitar. No, it's not. <laughs> it's a piccolo bass. Really. I beg to differ. <laughs> right? But then again, like I said, depending on the dynamic range, I don't like to put, you know, a track with five different basses on. It's too much. It's just too, you know, too much, too much in the middle. I get what, let's, let's talk about gear for a second. Um, what is your go-to? I know and, you have a yeah oh aguilar man in in, okay. a, in a perfect day uh it's uh it's a db 751 that had i love that hat and and for me with jeff the powerhouse because jeff plays really loud and so does Vinny, and i stand in between the two of them and it's like oh my god you know and i don't have yeah. any <laughs> i gotta be able to i gotta be able to hang so um i prefer the db uh 810 so 810 so looks like a fridge in a yeah. perfect of those together so i'm not you know killing it too hard but i love the 751 aguilar it sounds great with all of my bases and i got to that point josh you know over time and in different experiences through life when i go through summer sheds or whether i'm playing with another band or wherever it is and you have to go use somebody else's amp i just want something that's plug and play that sounds good Ah, i don't want to have to deal with the semi-parametric and the parametric and all of this, this shit, it's too much. I'm just like, you know, if, if, if you can make it sound good with bass, mid, treble, yeah, volume, <laughs> forget it. I'm going to put Sim- down the bass. Simple, yes. Aguilar for that. The tube, okay. it's, it's a heavy thing, but I mean, for, for touring, it's never let me down. It sounds sure. great with all of my basses. And it just has a tone that I just love. So they are my fave, fave, fave amp company, which again, I will be using um, this summer and this fall uh, on tour. Absolutely. DV7. Awesome. Awesome. I won. Um, I know you have a lot of different bases. Um, what are your, what are your mains? My mains are PRS. Um, and it's been like that for probably about 10 years now. Maybe oh, really? Eight. I didn't yeah, know that. Um, okay. Gary Granger, private stocks. Um, and four strings are my preference. Uh, I have a tequila sunrise. I have a five string from them too that I love. Um, they made a beautiful four string fretless for me. That's the same thing. Private stock Gary Granger that I used in the video for won't come back. Cool. And used in the new remix also for that. Um, and it's absolutely just it's just a gorgeous bass. You see it in the video. It's absolutely beautiful what they do with it. And then I have a white one that's four string two for a backup. So that for me, um, my tequila sunrise is the one that I use all the time. And it's just, it knows my hands. I've been using that bass probably for close to 10 years now, all the time. And I love it. So uh, it's, it's, it's Paul Reed Smith all the way. I know we spoke briefly about uh, effects that you use with prints and stuff. Do you have any favorites now? I do. You know, my faves are definitely um, MXR. Come on, Jim Dunlop. I don't. I don't go anywhere with with <laughs> without them. It's like my my new Mastercard. And you know, especially <laughs> one that I really love. I'm, I love them all, but my staples with them are. And I've surprised myself over the year. The carbon copy with uh, a tap delay for me. Okay. Even as a bass player that solos is 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 a must have for me, regardless if I ha- if I'm using um, a fretless or a fretted bass. I love that tap delay, and it's not too big and it's not too small, and it's made really well. I love that. I love the chorus deluxe. Um, I think that they make the best envelope filter. Yes. In the business. Yes. Um, and the octave divider is. I mean. Just, just all this stuff is killing. I've been loving the uh, poly, poly blue octave pedal. 
I don't know if you've tried that yet, but I have not. I'll have to talk to Daryl about that. Yes, that, <laughs> I think that's my favorite pedal right now. Well, I haven't tried that one yet. Oh, and they have a new phase that yes. is absolutely yes. killing. They have they have uh, tweaked it, tweaked the older one, and it's um, it's killing. So I mean, all their stuff is just on point. I, I don't leave home without them. You know, what's that? I don't leave home without this stuff. Oh, there you go. So what's next for Rhonda? Well, like I said, I got a new single, new remix coming out April 22nd. I've got a new uh, a new single after that that I'm going to be working at and possibly getting it mixed um, in Atmos, doing some stuff with Sweetwater, which is going to oh, be really, really cool. That's awesome. Yeah, looking forward to it. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe for the summer, we'll put that out. And um, getting ready to go back on tour uh, okay. after many years off with Jeff back looking forward to it. So we'll start in the UK in, um, in May and, um, and then we'll do um, most of Europe until probably the end of July. Very cool. And maybe we might, you know, might see me uh, or, or us back uh, in the fall in the U S hopefully, you know, I would so, love to see that. Are you going to do, are you going to tour with your own stuff? Definitely, when I get some time, absolutely. Cool. Maybe, uh, maybe this year. Hopefully, I just want to get a couple more singles uh, out there uh, first, yeah. and make sure everything's working well. You know. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I can't wait. I hope you get out there and it it goes big. What's something uh, most people would never know about you? That I love to cook, man. What do you? What's your? <laughs> okay. What's your specialty? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got, I make a lot of specialties, but most people who know me know that my lasagna is off the chain and I'm not just lying. It's a showstopper for real. Now I can't eat it every day. I wouldn't look like I do, but it's <laughs> for real, for real. Oh, I love lasagna. All right. You're going to have to uh, share your recipe one day. Yeah, it's killer. It's my mother's recipe, right? She'd probably kill me, but. Uh, oh, okay. Then I won't. I won't it's, uh, it's pretty killer. Though. It's pretty killer. And I can do a meat steak too. I'm not a vegetarian, so come on. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> no disrespect to vegans, you know? Right, right, right. Of course. Well, thank you so much for jumping on here. I really appreciate you. And, and um, uh, it's very inspiring and just plain awesome. I don't know what else to say. Well, thanks for having me, Josh. I'm looking forward to checking you out too, man. Hope you have uh, a great and musical and prosperous year too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening in to Bass Freaks. Stay healthy, spread love, spread joy, kindness, good vibes, and inspiration. And remember, you got this. Follow your path, whatever it may be, and just play. Until next time, cheers to you. And also, thank you to Dunlop for making this show possible. Make sure you check out Bass Freaks wherever you get your podcasts.